Would you like to live a healthier, happier, and more fulfilled life? Cultures from all over our planet have been addressing that concern for thousands of years, and their answers can help you in your life today. Join anthropologist and healer Robert Vetter as he introduces you to cultures of health and healing. Get ready now to try out some healing beliefs and practices from far and wide. Here's the host of your show, Robert Vetter. Welcome to everyone in my listening family. I am truly happy to be here today with William Horden, and I have to confess to everybody, this is an interview that I have really been looking forward to because of the profound respect that I have for William as a wisdom keeper. He was initiated into the Sudden Enlightenment School in 1971 and into the Tarahumara shamanic tradition in 1979. He's the author of 25 books, including In the Oneness of Time, The Education of a Diviner, which I have to say is a book that profoundly moved me. Uh, it, it, reading the book was an absolute experience, as I told him, um, off air a moment ago that was like stepping into uh, another dimension, honestly, the, one of the, the most amazing read. Um, a book called The Toltec I Ching, which is a hands-on way to do divination that we'll talk about a little bit later. The Art of Divination, The Five Emanations, The Spiritual Basis of Good Fortune. All of these are titles. And his most recent is called The Art of Divination, the role of consciousness and will in stepping outside time. William, welcome to our podcast. Thank you, Bob. It's a real pleasure to be here and to see you again. Thank you. Um, I am. I was so moved by your personal story that you shared in the book In the Oneness of Time. And I'd like to use this first episode for you to Take us on a journey of your life uh, through some of the highs and lows that, that marked that amazing passage that you describe. So take sure. us with you, if you would. I will do that. I'll try. I'll try. Um, well, I was, uh, I was born in uh, rural Ohio, and uh, I uh, never thought that my journey would look like this. It's not usually the path that farm boys from Ohio end up on. They, uh, my folks moved to um, Southern California when I was 10, and that was actually the biggest culture shock of my life. Uh, I've been in other countries and other cultures, but I've never gone from, from something like uh, rural life to suburban life in a big city. But it did open me up to the differences between people and the possibilities of uh, learning through, uh, so to speak, crisis or trauma, which uh, I, I experienced at that time. When I was uh, 19, I was fortunate enough to meet my first teacher, Master Kai Oxdee, and he was just uh, opening is I Ching Studies Institute and Taoist Sanctuary there in Southern California. And I, um, I had just come across the I Ching for the first time in my life a few months before that. 
And um, in opening that book, just uh, purely by accident coming across it, uh, I saw um, at the top of the page what we call a hexagram. And it was as if somebody had, uh, uh, you know, how in movies where you have a flashback of sorts to that suddenly somebody has a memory of something spontaneously. Suddenly I just, I remembered um, uh, memories that, would, that I would not be able to actually describe it, but I could say I knew something about this system, this I Ching, uh, that I had, never, I had never even heard of before in my life. Can you give us a one-sentence description of what the I Ching is for any listeners who don't know what it is? It's, um, it's a system of divination that is about 4,000 years old. It's from uh, the indigenous Taoist tradition in China. And uh, some people say it's 5,000 years old, but certainly it can be documented uh, 3,500, 4,000 years old. And um, it's a system where you cast uh, lots of one sort or another, coins or jarrow uh, stocks, and you uh, kind of ask a question. And there is an oracular presence, a spiritual being, we would say, that answers your question by, um, by, the, by the casting of lots. And then you... Uh, refer back to the book itself based on, the, uh, based on that throw. And uh, the I Ching is also famous for being a book of wisdom. And so a, a lot of people will say that it's a compendium of Chinese civilization, that people have poured the collective wisdom of China, ancient China, into the I Ching. And uh, there's a long-standing discussion. Was it a book of wisdom first, or was it a book of divination? Most most people would say, well, both. Just leave it at that. It's it's, it's a kind of a ridiculous <laughs> argument. But it's a it's a um, it's a system that uh, is probably one of the most commentated upon in the world even in English and foreign languages. But within China, there's, there are so many thousands of commentaries on it that have still not even been translated into uh, other languages. Because what happens is it, it is a system of, um, of symbols. And once you begin to um, attune yourself to those symbols, it draws you in deeper and deeper. So um, we can talk about that a little bit, but the, um, but meeting, meeting that, that teacher, Master uh, Kai Oxty, he, he took me on as his lineage student, and we began um, a two-year relationship of intense learning. And um, once we were in just a little bit, he said, uh, I, will, I will teach you everything that I know, but you are going to have to make a vow to me. 
And it's the same vow that I made to my teacher. And that is that you don't talk about any of the things that we're talking about and you don't teach or um, propagate this for 30 years. And because I was 19, 20 years old, that, that really seemed like a very easy thing for me to, to promise because the idea of me teaching anything was so far removed from my, my mindset at that time. Um, uh, so I actually ended up waiting 35 years just to be safe. <laughs> but, uh, It, uh, even though I went to him to study the I Ching, as, as I began to learn, he was a, a shaman in his own right and uh, had been um, uh, initiated into the Southern Enlightenment School. And so uh, that was, um, in many ways, that was, that was the start of my studies at the end of those two years, he said, there, um, that's everything that I know. You now need to go out and put it into practice. And in particular, you need to go and serve other people. And uh, that's what all of these teachings are about. That's what wisdom is about, is a being benefit, uh, being a benefit to everyone. And uh, so... Uh, shortly after meeting him, I, I met my future wife, Leonor, to, to whom I've been married uh, 48 or 49 years now. So, uh, we were fortunate enough to um, come into uh, contact with some folks in Southern Oregon who uh, um, in, in the uh, in the state and county government who were looking for people to take over the shelter home for abused and neglected children there. And I went up for the interview and met them and talked with them. And we, uh, we all uh, agreed that it was a good fit. And so for the next 20 or so years, we lived in, it was a great big uh, two-story house across the street from the courthouse and uh, we didn't go to work and go home at night. We lived in with the children, uh, some two or 3,000 of them over the 20 years, all of them in crisis. It was a, um, a place where they came for uh, a few days or a few weeks or a few months in, in between uh, what the courts and the social system could uh, figure out what was the best next best step in their life. And of course, uh, this was some of the very best training that I could ever have in, in life, to be around uh, children who are essentially wide open <clears throat> because they are, they are in crisis. And so you... Um, I, I felt called upon to be a, a present with them in a way that uh, extremely uh, intimate you know, in that sense that you're 
you don't really find a barrier, then how can you? You can't hide from them. They, their needs are what are the only thing on the table. And so uh, one of the things I learned out of all of that was that uh, there, there's only two kinds of people in, in the world. Uh, there's, there's short children and there's tall children. So um, after we 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 uh, worked at the uh, worked with the folks there running the shelter home for a few years and then I took a break for two years and went to um, the Sierra Tarahumara. Uh, that's also called the Barranca del Cobre or the Copper Canyon in Mexico. And that that is um, a canyon that is deeper than the Grand Canyon and is actually six times its area. And it's home to the Tarahumara people who are uh, the only uh, people. A tribe isn't really a word that's used in Mexico very much, but uh, let's just use that word for the sake of better word in English. It's the only tribe uh, that never signed a peace treaty with the nation of Mexico. So they, uh, they just gave them the, the, the Copper Canyon as their homeland. The real name of the Tarahumara people is Raramuri, but the Spanish had trouble pronouncing it and somehow it got mangled into Tarahumara. And uh, now after 500 years, they, they think of themselves uh, as a, by that name. Although if they're addressing one another, they'll say, so they, they, they address each other. It kind of means, on the one hand, it means uh, swift of foot because they're some of the world's greatest runners. But um, it also probably means children of the sun. Uh, because the, the name of the of the god of the sun was being the same thing as uh, Rayenari, so that Ra Ra Ramari probably means children of the sun. So I met uh, we we hiked in there, which uh, folks really hadn't done from the outside. This was uh, 1978, and. Uh, we came in uh, a very rugged way and uh, were met by the, by, although we didn't know it at the time, we were met by the shaman of the Pueblo. And um, he's a truly great man, and uh, one to whom I owe as much to him as I do to Master Kai. And uh, he... Uh, no, no one in the Pueblo came out except for him. And then once he began talking with us and everything, and he made some uh, gestures, people came out and greeted us. And uh, it was a, it, it was just a, a lovely first day. He um, set us up to um, to camp on his uh, property, and uh, that began a long, long, long relationship with him. And uh, which uh, he uh, initiated me into the, the rituals of, of uh, 
their tribe and uh, one of which was uh, you know was the most profound i don't know if you want to talk about that later or now but uh, why don't we save that um in our our next session we're going to go into more depth about the specific teaching so maybe we can cover that in the next good. one um but i'd like you to to just if you could explain a little bit about the the um the calendar if you could just mention it briefly now and then we'll go into greater depth in the next one well in the in the course of um of my studies with um master kai i i began to be aware that the the indigenous Taoist tradition had a lot of symbolic overtones to the Native American symbols. And um, because my wife is from Mexico, and, uh, and actually her great-great-grandmother, great-grandmother was Tara Humara, um, began investigating the Toltec tradition, which underlies all of those uh, tribes through central Mexico. And uh, for, first and foremost of that is the, uh, is the calendar, what's called the Tonapuali, the, the count of days. And um, that's more, it's better known as the Mayan calendar to, to folks in the, in the States. And uh, that's a divinatory instrument it has 260 days <clears throat> that are uh, per perfectly uh, coordinated to the solar calendar, to the to the um, revolutions of Venus and <coughs> excuse me and Mars. So the people would, um, based on their birth date. The, the priest, scribes, sages of um, ancient Mexico would be able to um, give them a name, what was called a calendrical name. So that might be like one alligator or three house or something like that. And then they would also have a, a personal name on top of that. But this would uh, this would um, be very well. Essentially, it's astrology, and um, a person has to remember that this calendar uh, is very old and predates any um, uh, contact by the Europeans uh, by a thousand years or more. And uh, that became uh, that, that became a very large part of my studies for a long time. It's again, it's it's one of these systems of uh, symbolism that the, the further you step into it, the the deeper it gets. It's like the ocean. <laughs> you can you can go in up to your ankles, but if you keep keep walking, <clears throat> you're over your head pretty quick and. Um, and it's it's uh, it's full of iconography that that depicts different uh, spiritual deities, each of each of whom, uh, of course, like in Tibetan Buddhism, you know, ca carries um, 
archetypal significance for the psyche and for, and for the you know, for the collective soul. I I was wondering if you could share one quick story. We're we're getting close to the close of our first session, but I I seem to recall in uh, in in the oneness of time, an incident where you were sitting in a, a coffee shop or a, a restaurant and you were working on the calendar and somebody came out. Do, do I have that story right? This was in, yeah, this was in, uh, in uh, Tepotzlan, which is a very famous uh, town uh, for its, uh, um, in the spiritual community, it's very highly regarded. And, uh, there was a restaurant and the owner came out and said, you're here every day uh, going over these uh, codices and the calendar. What's going on? And I said, well, this is, this is a real passion of mine. And uh, I have been studying it now for a year or more. And he mentioned a couple of things and I was able to keep up with it. I knew what he was talking about. And so he said, why don't you come back here in the back? And uh, he had a he had a group of people that uh, were all familiars there. Um, uh, so the restaurant was more for the public, but he invited me into the back. And there, there were some um, uh, some folks that were just sitting down to, uh, to a game of patoli, which is this uh, really ancient game. You can see it depicted in some of the ancient codices and. Uh, and they said, well, we need a fourth person to play. Do you want to learn? And I couldn't have been happier. It was, it was a real honor. And um, it's, a, it's a place where there's, there's four, in a way, it's kind of like Parcheesi. You can kind of think of it in, in that model of a, of a sense. And <clears throat> there's four players, but you, you, you take the seat of one of the four gods that are representative of the four years. And it's, in other words, this, this game of uh, Patoli is completely like looking at the calendar and playing this game of, of the gods on this representation of time and space right in front of you. And it's, it's an extraordinary um, experience. And when you're playing, it takes total concentration because the object is not to win. The object is to keep the game going as long as possible by not letting other people win. And so you're, you're sacrificing your, your pieces over and over again to, to stall. And so the game can go on six or eight hours without any problem. And, um, and if somebody has a lapse of attention and makes a mistake and lets somebody win, oh, oh, it's 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 terrible. It's, <laughs> so, but it's always felt like even if you were to win, it wasn't anything you did. It was that was that God's um, time to carry the burden around the around the calendar. So it's a very it's a very wonderful experience. And then later, uh, I, I became friends with the owner, and he was a true madman. He there's a cliff there with a, a, the ruins of a pyramid at the top of it, 
and he and some of the other uh, people there in the in the community would go every morning and race to the top of the pyramid to the of the cliff. I had walked it. It took me an hour and forty five minutes. They were doing it in sixteen minutes. Eighteen minutes. They weren't taking the road. They were. They had some way to climb the cliff. But um, one night he said, it was a huge storm blowing in, and he said, come. And uh, we, we went up through the second story and then climbed a ladder up to the, to the roof, through an opening on the roof. And, uh, and there were a couple of his uh, cohorts, his students up there on top of the roof. And uh, he said, here, put on this. And it was a, like a windbreaker a little bit oversized windbreaker. And, uh, and uh, everybody went out to the edge of this roof and they opened their windbreaker wide open and they leaned out into the wind. And it, it, the wind was strong enough that it would lift them up off the, their feet off the roof and it would and, and push them back you know, three, five, seven, ten feet, something like that. But you really had to lean out over into the wind to do it. And again, it's just the ecstasy, you know. It's just you're outside of your body completely. You, you realize these are rituals that are just handed down. And, uh, and he, he said... Um, uh, we are, if you use the word, uh, hijos de Eekato, children of the wind. And uh, I thought, you know, that's, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. <laughs> that is a beautiful story. And William, I think that's a good place for us to end for our first section. Okay. Uh, because in our upcoming uh, episode, we're going to really delve into these teachings and find out exactly what it means about how we live our lives and how we can access greater yeah. wisdom. So I want to thank you for this, this first episode and really looking forward to the next one. Me too, Bob. Thank you. And thanks, everybody, for listening. This has been Cultures of Health and Healing with Robert Vetter. Thanks for listening. Please remember to subscribe and rate this show and share it with others. Until next time, remember, your health and healing matter, and you can find your own unique path to optimum wellness.